Let me again firstly welcome everyone to the service this evening. Uh, welcome too to those who are joining us uh, online. And uh, as always, we trust that God will guide us and bless us through this time of worship. Before we begin the worship, just let me mention a few things from the news sheet today. And you'll see the different uh, activities and uh, services throughout the week mentioned there. Uh, the Youth Club meets also on Tuesday evening. That's from 7.30 to 9 o'clock. That'll be here in the MA Hall just beside us. And uh, after a very excellent mission meeting last Wednesday, um, if anybody wishes to contribute to the work of Asia Link, you can follow the directions there in the intimation. Just leave an envelope with Asia Link marked on it in the collection plate. And if you are uh, putting in a cheque, then make the cheques payable to Stornoway Free Church, and then the amount will be uh, processed onto Asia Link by the treasurer. Um, also, if uh, you can see the intimation there for uh, a thanks to yourselves as a congregation uh, from the Deacon's Court, and certainly that includes myself too, um, for the support that you have shown to the gospel uh, and to our ministry here over the past while, and uh, especially during these difficult times in the last year and a half or so. And uh, do notice also at the end of the intimation there, anyone who wishes to uh, contribute by regular standing order, speak to Murdoch MacPhail or to any of the office bearers. And uh, if you uh, do wish to actually include gift aid in that, which we always emphasize, the church gets back a substantial amount from the taxman, uh, from the inland revenue for, uh, in gift aid. It doesn't involve uh, giving anything extra to the church. It's just the recovery of a certain amount um, by, the, uh, by the church. So again, if you want to discuss any of that, please just again mention it to Murdo McPhail. And one final thing, there is a, a fundraising takeaway in the ME Hall on Saturday the 2nd of October that's in aid of God is Good Africa. And the funds from that will go to uh, Kenny John Mackenzie's work with Lighthill Christian School in Uganda and the Trinity College in Congo as well. Uh, so I'll leave you to just read that through for yourselves as well. Uh, let's begin our worship of God this evening, singing in Psalm 31. That's in the Sing Psalms version. Psalm 31. And page 37, we're singing verses 19 to 24. Your goodness, Lord, is very great, prepared for those who fear your name. You show your goodness openly to all who your protection claim. Your presence hides and shelters them from those who plot to take their life, and in your tent you keep them safe from evil tongues that stir up strife. That's Psalm 31 and verses 19 to 24. Your goodness, Lord, is very great, prepared for those who fear your name. And we're standing to sing. <clears throat>
Let's now call upon the Lord in prayer. Let's engage in prayer together. O Lord our God, we give thanks for these great reassuring words that we have been singing in your praise. Words that assure us as we place our trust and confidence in you, so you will be true to your promise to look after your people. We thank you that that remains true through all their circumstances in life, even when they are being most opposed by the world and the hatred of the world. And we thank you tonight for this privilege once again, O Lord, that we gather in your name, that we gather round your word, that we gather in fellowship together and with our God. And we thank you for the promise that you will be there, that you have placed your own name where your people meet together. And Lord, that you are there in the midst of them. And we thank you that that is an experience that your people have, not just a matter of statement. And we pray that tonight we may know that for ourselves that your Holy Spirit will manifest to us the very presence of God in our midst, that your Holy Spirit will come and take the things of Christ and make them clear and cogent to us. We thank you, O Lord, for all that you are to your people, and for the way that you prove yourself faithful down through each and every age of history, and especially, Lord, in our times too, that you prove yourself to your people day by day, to be a God who is faithful. We pray, O Lord, that these things will encourage us tonight as we come into your presence. We have much to bring before you, Lord, that could discourage us greatly. We have much even to confess, O Lord, that we find within ourselves, within our own inconsistencies and our failures, that could make us disconsolate. And indeed, at times, O Lord, do so. We give thanks that tonight we can bring them to you and lay them out before you. We pray that you would assure us, O Lord, however serious we may see our sin, and it is always more serious than we ourselves imagine, yet you have made provision against it. Our sin is never greater than our Savior and the salvation that is in him. And we pray, O Lord, tonight that as we confess our sin before you, as each one of us comes with our own personal burden, as we bring before you needs of the church as well that we belong to, Gracious Lord, we, we pray that you would come to us in your forgiveness, that you would lift away our sin from us in your own pardon and in cleansing us from our sin. And assure us again, Lord, that when you forgive our sin, they are truly forgiven, and that your cleansing of sin is through that work of your Holy Spirit brought towards its final perfection in the cleanness of heaven itself. We thank you tonight for every way in which you support your people, for the way that you uphold them in difficulties and trials, for the way that you make even their trials to work towards their good ultimately. And, O oh Lord, we thank you that the sufferings of your people, as we read in your word, have always been part of your program for your people as you bring them further onwards in that life and journey of faith. And even though we know, O Lord, that our sufferings are themselves directly related to our sin, to our fallenness, yet we thank you that it pleased you to make provision for us so that even the very difficulties and trials and sufferings in the lives of your people are themselves contributors towards uh, your sanctification of them. We pray tonight for thankful hearts as we realize that 
Our sufferings, though at times we may feel them greater than ourselves or greater than we are able to bear, yet they are never greater than your capacity and strength and greater than your ability to minister grace to us. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Once again, we come to you and give thanks for your word and give thanks for the ways in which we know your word to be effective in our own lives. We pray that each of us here tonight, Lord, will know the power of your truth in our hearts. We pray for any tonight, Lord, who may find themselves disconsolate, lacking assurance. We pray that you would bring on your people towards greater assurance. And we ask, O Lord, that where we lack assurance as your people, that you would minister to us from your truth. And help us tonight, Lord, we pray, if we have not yet come to make our peace with God, we have not yet come to fully embrace the claim of Christ and his call in the gospel, uh, to come to you and to lay down our rebelliousness and receive you as you offer yourself to us in the gospel. Lord, help us tonight to do so. And help us if we have come, O oh Lord, tonight to this place or are watching online and know that in our hearts we have departed from your ways, that we have grown cold in our love and affection for you, that we have stepped aside from committed service to you. O oh Lord, our God, we pray that you would bless us in our recovery. And we ask for any tonight who are backslidden and gone back to the ways of the world. Uh, we pray that you would uh, send forth your light and your truth to their recovery. And Lord, help us, we pray, as we pray for each other and as we pray for your church at large, to do so realizing that we are constantly dependent upon your Holy Spirit for every step that we take through life. We pray uh, that you would also shield us, O Lord, from uh, the works of the devil. And Lord, we pray that as we know of his attacks and his attempts uh, through the very uh, many agents that he uses in the world and the very means that are open to him to use, help us to discern his ways. Help us, Lord, to look to you and to look to the temptation of Jesus himself and to the teaching of your word in regard to that and that of the apostles and the church in these days. Lord, help us, we pray, to learn from how they faced that temptation and these attacks. And grant to us the grace, we pray, to withstand in the evil day and to take the whole armor of God to us and having done all to stand. We pray, Lord, tonight too for all whom we commit to you who are ill at this time of our number. We think of those who are seriously ill, those even approaching death as it seems. We pray that you would grant your blessing, Lord, to prepare them for eternity. We ask that they may be ready to be taken into the presence of the Lord. Uh, we pray that whatever their life has been up to now, that you would give them the grace to place their confidence in you and to receive you even at this time. We ask for those who mourn the passing of loved ones, whether recently or in times gone by. O oh Lord, we ask that you would be with them to comfort and to uphold and to strengthen them. Help us never to forget them in our prayers. Remember them, Lord, at tonight as they continue to grieve and as they continue to at times feel bewildered and lost with regard to such sore providences. Lord, we do commit them to you. And we ask that you bless all who help us in our community at large. Bless tonight those who teach our young in the schools around us and throughout our land. Lord, we pray that you would 
uh, grant to us a proper response to all the attempts that are being made and indeed have been made successfully to introduce teaching that is contrary to your word, to the standards of your word, to the ethic of your word. Lord, help us, we pray, as we pray for the protection of our young people. We thank you for those who teach them sincerely and especially for those who have a regard to your truth and to the values and principles of your truth. We pray that you would continue to bless and protect them. We ask that you bless those in uh, the various forms of uh, medical uh, provision that you make for us in our hospice, in our hospitals, in our care homes, in our surgeries. We thank you for all the assistance we receive. We pray that you would bless them, that you would bless our local authority, that you would bless our local education authority too. O Lord, our God, in all of these things, we look to you for your guidance, for your help towards uh, steering us away from that which would be harmful further to ourselves or to our children. And so we pray for all such throughout our land. We pray for those in the judiciary, uh, those who look after law and order in our land. Bless them. Keep them, Lord, we pray, from being tempted by bribery or corruption. And grant that you would uh, give to us continually to set them before you also. We ask for those who work with street pastors locally and elsewhere. We thank you for the team locally that go out each week and seek to help those who have fallen upon specific needs relating to addictions, to alcohol, to drug abuse. We thank you for the, the safety that uh, these people can look forward to as they are helped by the street pastors. And we pray for all who go out, O oh Lord, and meet with cases of need. We ask that you would give them wisdom we pray that you would protect them and guide them in all that they do. And continue with us now, Lord, as we turn to your word. And hear us in this our prayer and accept us and pardon our sins for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're reading tonight now from the New Testament scriptures in the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Uh, second Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, and then we'll turn back again to Philippians, where we've been looking for some weeks at the teaching of the apostle there. So first of all, Second Thessalonians, and chapter 1, we'll read through the whole of that chapter, just a short chapter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints 
and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we turn back to Philippians as well, we'll read verses at the end of chapter 1 from verse 27. Philippians 1 at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And as we follow on from last time where we saw uh, Paul's uh, concern to glorify Christ, whether it was by death or in his continued life of service in this world, and then uh, there in the previous few verses saying he was convinced that he would actually remain and continue with them for their progress and joy in the faith. And he turns now to say that whether it is the case that he's released or otherwise, as far as this is concerned, it really doesn't matter because there's one thing he wants to hear about these Philippians, whether he's hearing it uh, shortly before he's going out to die or in his continued uh, life as, as a servant of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or else I'm absent, I may hear this of you. That is his primary concern uh, in this point for the Philippian people, for the Philippian Christians. And there are two images that Paul frequently uses, or fairly frequently, in conveying to the churches he was writing to the various truths that he wanted to set out as the truths of the gospel. The first image is that of citizenship. Uh, citizenship was something that Paul obviously took careful note of, and that will be very familiar uh, to the Philippian people, to the Philippian church, uh, because Philippi was a very important Roman colony, uh, more important than many other parts of the Roman Empire, just uh, apart from Rome itself. And because Philippi itself was an important Roman colony, it had specific uh, citizenship privileges which were granted to many of the citizens of Philippi more than other parts were through in other parts of the empire. So citizenship for the people of Philippi, for the people in the church in Philippi, was something they understood. And so to convey the truth of the gospel through the imagery of citizenship would be understood even on the surface by the people in the church in Philippi. The other imagery is an imagery from uh, the world of the military. Um, you find Paul frequently 
presenting that imagery of the, the Roman soldier in the, likes of Galatia, uh, in the likes of Ephesians chapter 6. And here, in fact, we find evidence of, of military phraseology in order to convey what he wants the Philippians to remember uh, in terms of their lifestyle. Because not only was Philippi an important, um, uh, an important uh, colony of Rome, it was also a very important military town. Uh, if you were living in Paul's day in Philippi, you'd be very familiar with active soldiers, soldiers on active duty, uh, living in the town, going through the town, or you'd be also very familiar at times with retired military soldiers, retired Roman soldiers. It may very well have been uh, that the, 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 the guardian of the prison in Philippi, into which Paul and Silas were thrown at first, the Philippian jailer who was converted, in all likelihood was uh, a retired Roman soldier, though we can't be sure, of course, but it was very often the case. So the Philippians would be very familiar with the Roman military um, setup and uh, uh, soldiers and other military activities, as well as with the issue of citizenship. Now, the reason I'm mentioning that is because in this passage itself, you find both of these elements combined. He's talking here about uh, the manner of life, which, as we'll see, contains the idea of citizenship and the behavior that's expected of citizens of any, any particular place but it also contains the imagery of, uh, of a military kind where he talks there about uh, being striving side, side by side, standing firm in one spirit against the enemy, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So the two things we can bring from the passage tonight, and that's not by any means going into all of the detail in it, but the two things we want to have a look at particularly are, first of all, what he calls a lifestyle worthy of the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that's the first thing, a lifestyle worthy of the gospel. And the second thing is what we can call steadfastness under fire. Steadfastness under fire, turning to the imagery of the, the military, they're under fire, they're facing their opponents, their opponents are, uh, are powerful, um, obviously they'd have opponents within, within the political system in, Rome, in, in, in Philippi as well. Uh, but he's saying to them, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So they have to remain steadfast under fire, uh, facing this uh, hostility, facing the opposition that they're facing because they're Christians, because of what they're living for, that I may hear, he says of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the first thing then is a lifestyle worthy of the gospel. He's saying here only, and that word only goes back to the point we made at the beginning. This is really a burden for the apostle. This is a chief concern of the apostle. Whatever happens to me, he's saying, this is what I want to be true of you. I want to hear that your manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And the word that's used there, translated manner of life, um, is a word that really contains within, uh, within it the idea of, of uh, citizenship. It's a, it's a word that carries with it uh, the matter of citizenship. In other words, just as you would say in the ordinary political sense, um, the citizens of any particular place, such as Philippi, uh, the reputation of that place would be tied to their way of life, to how they behaved. 
But it's not really Philippi in the highest sense that Paul has in mind when he's talking about citizenship. He's talking about spiritual citizenship. And he's talking about the city of heaven. You go forward to chapter 3 there and you can see clearly chapter 3 verse 20. Our citizenship, he says, but our citizenship, contrasting it with those that are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ, but our citizenship or our place of citizenship is in heaven. This is the city that he's calling upon the Philippian Christians to actually uh, live worthily of. Let your citizenship, let your manner of life, let your spiritual citizenship be worthy of the gospel. Let the fact that you belong to the city of heaven be seen in how you live, in how these people around you see you, even as you face them and deal with their opposition. And citizenship, of course, in that spiritual sense, is conferred on every believer. It wasn't the case with every single person living in the city of Philippi that they were actually citizens of Rome. Rome conferred citizenship uh, upon people that uh, they themselves were felt, were felt worthy of it, but it wasn't something for everyone. Paul himself was a citizen of Rome because he had an ancestry that had citizenship of Rome. Uh, it wasn't something that he bought. It was something that he inherited. Uh, but here, not everybody in Philippi would have been a citizen of Rome, but everybody that's in Christ is a citizen of heaven. You have that citizenship the moment you have Jesus. And that citizenship confers upon you privileges that abound beyond anything this world will actually give you. And so he's calling these Philippians to think of their spiritual citizenship, what it means to be a citizen of heaven, and the kind of lifestyle, therefore, that corresponds to that and commends what they're saying about themselves as Christians. In other words, they're really, uh, they're really being called by the apostle here to remember that their way of life is tied to the reputation of their king, to the reputation of Jesus. And to the gospel that they themselves, as the apostles, are preaching, and that these Philippians are seeking to live out in their lives. The reputation of the gospel, the reputation of Jesus, the reputation of God, everything indeed that uh, has been taught by the apostle to the Philippians already, he is saying, this is what I want to hear about you. It doesn't matter whether it's my death or my continuing life. This is what I want to hear, that you are living worthy, that your citizenship, your way of life as citizens of heaven is worthy of the gospel of Christ, adorns the gospel of Christ. But why does he say the gospel? He doesn't say it's worthy of Christ. He says worthy of the gospel of Christ because it's because he wants to emphasize for the Philippian church, and it's emphasizing it for ourselves, of course, too, that the terms of the gospel, the content of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, where the, the teaching of all the things that are important to us as far as our life is concerned, the ethics of the Christian life, everything that enters into our relationship with God and with one another and with the world in which we're living, the gospel as it defines and as it delineates these for us is that that we are actually seeking as Christians to live in accordance with. Worthy of that gospel, in accord with that gospel, in conformity to that gospel. All of that is included in what Paul means by living in a manner worthy of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. A lifestyle that's in keeping with and indeed conditioned by that gospel. Let me just refer to uh, someone who I'm going to read from this Table Talk magazine, which is uh, something I receive regularly. I commend it to you if you don't have it. It's produced in America by Legonier Ministries. Um, and um, it has daily readings in it following usually some book, uh, some book of the Bible, but also little articles uh, by various people. And this is why uh, Rosaria Butterfield, uh, Rosaria Butterfield, now well-known Christian author, but uh, she was at one time very virulently against the gospel, uh, lived in an openly lesbian lifestyle, along with others uh, who were professors in the uh, University of Syracuse uh, in New York. But she came to be invited to a certain pastor's house called Ken Smith, uh, who was the, the father of one of her colleagues in university, and uh, uh, the son of, of this pastor invited Rosaria to a meal in his father's house in the family home. And she went there, she accepted the invitation, and it was a moment of, uh, of really critical importance in her life. And in this little article, uh, she talks about how they sat down at a long table with many people at it, young and old, mingling together, discussing the Bible, and obviously very happy in Christ, and all of these things that come with living the Christian life. We ate for a long time, she said, and then we sang Psalm 23, and this is what she says, voices in all four parts to the tune of Crimond rang strong and right as rain, and when we sang, a table thou hast furnished me in presence of my foes, I started to lose my sense of which way was up. I started to get all turned around, as if I had absentmindedly taken the wrong path on a well-walked trail. I was trained to play the part of the victim and to perceive myself as a sexual minority, voiceless among the voiced. As we sang, I said to myself, yes, dear victim, here you are in the presence of your foes, these awful, hateful people who want to trample on your rights. But even though victimhood served as my catechism, I couldn't make myself believe this while singing Psalm 23. Something wasn't right. And that's when it dawned on me that I, the English professor, was misreading the text. I wasn't the one dining in the presence of my enemies. I was the enemy. That's when the light really went on in her soul. And she goes on, and this is a point I really wanted to get to as well, that I was the enemy at this table made little matter to Pastor Ken, for he knew that Christ was not done with me, that I had mocked Christians, written university policy that extolled hatred for God, taught classes that enlisted others into a worldview that walks only to hell and sinned against others was not the main thing for this godly pastor and the church that he pastored. The main thing was Christ crucified and risen. The Christian life goes on regardless of how many enemies are at the table because enemies cannot mar or perjure the main thing of the Christian life, which is that I may know him 
and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, Philippians 3.10. And then she goes on further, but she comes to a point where she says this, and we'll leave off the quotation here. She is saying here, our faith is meant to flourish in the presence of our enemies. Our faith is meant to flourish in the presence of our enemies. That's exactly what the apostle is saying here. I want to hear about you, whether I live or die, that you are living worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you're absent, I may hear that this is true concerning you, that you're standing in one spirit, that you're not frightened in anything by your opponents and so on, fighting side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the one thing especially that he has in mind. So just like Rosaria Butterfield came to see in her life, she wasn't sitting, as she said, surrounded by enemies who were Christians. She came to see that she was the enemy of God, the enemy of his truth, the enemy of his standards, and the enemy of his people. And she has a wonderful testimony since then and has authored a number of books, and I commend these to you as well. Uh, but this is coming back to the text. Whether I come and see you or not, that you live worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so that steadfastness under fire is what, what he next takes up. In verse 30, the Philippians are obviously in a battle. You are engaged, he said, in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. In other words, he's saying, cast your binds back to when I first met you, what happened to me in Philippi, thrown into that terrible dungeon and mistreated and then sent on my way afterwards, having been abused, having been persecuted. Uh, you saw, he's saying, that conflict that I was engaged in and you're still hearing about me that I'm engaged in the same conflict. But he's saying, that's the one you're engaged in as well. And because you're engaged in that same conflict as I am, he's saying, this is what I want to hear about you, that you are standing firm with one, uh, in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, friends, it's all too easy for us uh, to detach holiness of life from the front line of the battle. We mustn't actually have it in mind that holiness of life means you don't really go near the front line. You stay safely behind it. You let others actually go, the elite troops, if you like, to the front line, and you stay safely behind it, and you, to that extent, don't really commit yourself to displaying your life for Christ the way that others do. There's nothing of that in these terms that Paul is laying out for the Philippians or elsewhere in the Bible. Our holiness is for the front line. Our following of Christ is for the battlefield. Our following of Jesus is to actually face the opposition that the world throws at the gospel and throws at the church, whatever generation we belong to. And so that's why tonight God is making his appeal through this passage itself, I'm sure, that if you have not yet committed your life to Jesus, or if you have but you have not made that really plain and known, tonight he's saying to you, you know, your life as a Christian is side by side with those who are on the front line of the battle 
And we're facing an enemy that's determined, if it were possible, to wipe out the gospel. The you here, of course, is plural. That you, that I may hear, that you are standing firm in one spirit together. Standing firm together, which then follows into the following verses. Because the enemy's strategy is always to divide and conquer, isn't it? The, the, the enemy's strategy is always to fracture the unity, fracture the unit of God's people as they face the world. You only have to go back to uh, what Jesus said to Peter in Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired you so that he might sift you as wheat. In other words, he's really saying to Peter, this is Satan's desire, this is Satan's aim, this is the, the purpose that he has in his attack on you. He wants to get in among you to scatter you. And why does he want to scatter you? Well, it's to discredit the gospel, to discredit the truth of the gospel. And that's sadly what you see down through the ages. That's what he's intent on doing, even within this building tonight, because where the gospel is set and where the gospel is witnessed to by God's people and where the gospel is preached from this pulpit, you can be absolutely sure that there is a dark power at work, to some extent or other, that will always try and divide and conquer, that will always come and discredit the gospel by a disunity among the Lord's people. He says, I want to hear you, that you are side by side, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And it's interesting he puts it that way, just reinforcing the need for that unity of purpose and action on the part of God's people in this world. <clears throat> to be standing firm in one spirit and to be standing side by side, striving side by side, engaged in conflict side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now God can bless by little, by few, or by many, by little or by great. But nevertheless, it's an imperative that he's setting before us that if we have the interests of the gospel at heart, as we all surely do, then it's our place to be beside all the others who are striving together for the faith of the gospel. By the faith of the gospel, he actually means the body of truth that is the gospel itself. The content of this gospel as it presents all the various uh, doctrines and teachings that it sets before us uh, in God's word. And that gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, as that good news about Christ is uh, filtered through, if you like, these other teachings of how we relate to God, how we come to be right with God, our justification, our sanctification, our holiness of life, our service for Christ, everything really that's contained in the gospel. He's saying here, that's the faith of the gospel. And he's saying, I may hear of you that you are doing this, standing firm with one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Friends, this, this is our battle now. Uh, this is not something just telling us this is how it was in the Apostle Paul's day. 
This is the battle that's raging now. A battle over the faith of the gospel. A battle over gospel standards, gospel truths. State-imposed anti-gospel measures that we as Christians have to take on and stand against and have to actually come out if we need to come out to engage with that kind of teaching, with that kind of attempt to, to overthrow the gospel and the standards of the gospel. That's really what we're facing, this anti-gospel coalition on the part of the state and its agents that are trying through various means not only to discredit the gospel, but to dispose of it altogether. Or at least dispose of it in public life, even if it continues you know, on an individual basis. And sadly, the issue is made much more difficult because the visible church, the church in the widest sense, and this is not in any way to present ourselves as better than others or anything like that. But as you look out over the wider church in our land and indeed throughout the world, it is very obvious that the faith of the gospel, the content of the gospel, is regarded by many as old hat. And that's why the teaching of the gospel is adjusted and manipulated and turned or even abandoned in some cases when it has to do with certain issues that are current in the society and in the culture of the day. The gospel is being turned to accord with the culture rather than the other way about. And that's part of the battle that we face that makes it all the more difficult when all who profess the Lord are not fully engaged in the faith of the gospel and are convinced of this as the truth of God given to us uh, so as to govern human life. You know, one of the um, most brilliant chapters in the Bible, I think, um, is the third chapter in the book of Nehemiah. And if you go to the book of Nehemiah and you look at the third chapter, you might wonder why I've said that. Because the, book of, the third chapter in the book of Nehemiah consists largely of a list of names. A list of names of the people who were seeking to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem after that long captivity in Babylon having returned under the direction of Nehemiah as it was at that point to actually rebuild the walls. And when you read through that chapter, it's a chapter of profound importance for unity in the imagery it presents of us. It goes through all of these families and all of these uh, different uh, people that are mentioned. It's a brilliant narrative. And at least 29 times in that chapter, you have the words next to or after him. It tells you... Uh, Next to so-and-so stood so-and-so. It's talking about, the, uh, as I said, the repair of the walls. Um, and as it goes through, uh, speaking about those who actually uh, helped with that, let me just give you a couple of examples from it um, in, in, in the third chapter there, um, where it says that... Uh, Eliashib, the high priest, rose with his brothers. They built the sheep gate. They consecrated it, so on and so on. And next to him, the men of Jericho. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri. The sons of Hasanah built the fish gate. Next to them, were so on and so on. Next to them, next to them, beside them, 
after them, all the way through the chapter. And you realize when you come to the end of the description that you're back where you began, on the starting point of the wall. You've gone all the way around the wall, and there isn't a gap to be seen among those who are helping to rebuild it. There is not a single gap there. It's always next to him, next to him, next to them, apart from one group, the nobles of the Tekoites, who are singled out for special mention because they refused to submit and to bend to this requirement. And they're singled out for special notice because of their lack of cooperation in the building of the wall. Now there is a chapter that really tells us in that wonderful imagery, in that physical activity, you translate that into what Paul is saying to the Philippians. I want to hear of you that you are standing, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There should be no gaps in the activities of God's people when they're standing firm in the gospel, firm in one spirit, when they're striving for the faith of the gospel, striving side by side. It's probably, again, an imagery of taken from Roman uh, military uh, activity in the army. If, the, if you found a, a group of, of soldiers coming to approach, for example, a walled city or, or a fortified um, uh, fortified um, uh, building uh, occupied by their enemies, they would actually use their shields and put the shields over their heads so that whatever's thrown at them would bounce off it and they would be covered entirely by the shields over their heads and down the sides. But you had to actually stand close to each other in order to be effective. And really that's something like what Paul has in mind, striving side by side. Tonight, friends, are we are we committed to this? Are we committed to striving side by side? Are we committed to striving, but striving side by side? Don't let anybody else outdo you in your work for Christ. Don't let it be said of anyone else that they are actually more committed than you are. However much or however little you do, that's not the point. It's the level of your commitment. It's the way in which you stand side by side with others in seeking to uh, actually have this striving for the faith of the gospel. Our day needs it. This town needs it. Our localities need it. Striving together. And then finally, not frightened in anything by your opponents. The word frightened there is, is also a very strong word. It's the kind of thing that you associate with horses that bolt after being given a fright by something. Uh, so it's a sense of panic. He says, don't, instead of, um, uh, instead of being frightened by your opponents, keep on striving side by side. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. And that's such a difficult thing sometimes. There's a lot of intimidation out there. Whether you're writing blogs or preaching the gospel, or witnessing to your neighbor, or have a place uh, at work where you engage with a lot of people who are hostile to the gospel. There's a lot of intimidation going on. And it'd be very easy to just capitulate and draw back and just keep things private. No, he says, don't be frightened, don't be intimidated by your opponents in anything. 
Because he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What is he saying is a sign? Your unity, your standing firm, your being side by side in the gospel and for the faith of the gospel is a sign to those who are opponents that there's something going on in your life that they don't have. And it's a sign of their destruction as that gospel itself sets that out. You see, if we want to present to the world the reality of God's truth with regard to what eternity is like for those who are not in Christ, for those who die without Christ, then we do it by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel because that will actually be noticed by those who oppose the gospel and you'll find people saying, well, well these people must have, just like Rosaria Butterfly, but Butterfield there, uh, at that table with all these Christians around her, it suddenly dawned on her, there's something wrong here. There's something here I need to try and understand. These Christians are actually right and I'm wrong. I'm the one who's been in the wrong. I'm the enemy. And that, as we witness to the world, that's what we pray for. That God will bring to them a sure sign of their own destruction if they keep clinging to ungodliness. But on the other hand, it's for you, he says, a sign of your salvation and that from God. Because when we're standing side by side for the faith of the gospel, we realize that I wouldn't be doing this along with my fellow Christians if it was simply left to my own choice. It's a sign of my salvation and of our salvation when that is done willingly by us, when we share in that, uh, in that striving for the faith of the gospel, when we're not diverted from that or frightened or intimidated by our opponents, then we say to ourselves, Lord, this is your doing and I must be part of that great number that can say that we are your people. It's a sign of our salvation and that of God or from God. But then he says something remarkable and I need to wind, it, wind, wind our study up with this. Uh, for he says it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. And it's remarkable because the words he's using there, the word granted is really very much to do with grace. Now we easily associate grace with faith, with believing on Christ and that's what he's saying. It has been granted to you, it has been graced to you. The grace of God has actually given you this gift this gift of believing in Christ. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Or in Ephesians chapter 2, where you have the emphasis there that it's of grace that we are saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We don't create or manufacture the faith, though we're required to exercise faith in Christ. But he says, so too is your suffering. As surely as faith is a gift of God, Paul is saying, so is your suffering as a Christian. Suffering for the sake of Christ. Suffering in his name and for his sake. Now we have to be careful because this doesn't encourage us at all to ask God for suffering. As if it was right to pray, Lord, bring suffering into my life so that I can be tested and serve you and so on. It's not what he's saying, but he is saying where suffering is in the life of a Christian, where the providence of God has brought suffering such as the Philippians and the apostle or wherever it is, small or great, 
It is a gift of God. It is a grant of his grace. And you might think, well, that's surely strange. How can it be a grant of his grace to suffer for the sake of Christ? Well, because it's part of God's program of redemption. It's part of God's program for our sanctification and ultimately for our glorification. It works towards that. Remember how Job long ago in the Old Testament and his complaint against God and in saying many things that he afterwards had to retract. Uh, but in chapter 23, as he's there speaking to God himself and speaking out his agony of soul and his suffering, he comes to the point where he says, he knows the way that I take. And after he has tried me, after he has refined me, like gold I shall come forth. See, he's saying, and at least in a glimpse of it there, he's saying, well, this affliction, this difficulty, this trial is in God's hands going to result in my purification. And you go from there to Psalm 119, verse 71. Psalmist is saying, it has been good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes, your precepts. Or go to that classic verse in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 16 to 18. So he says, we do not lose heart. Having been speaking about all the troubles that he had gone through and he knew uh, this church was going through as well. So he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction Imagine what he's saying. You look at the descriptions Paul is giving uh, in this letter itself, even in this chapter itself. Afflicted in every way, perplexed, persecuted, forsaken, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Although he is saying, along with that, not crushed, not driven to despair, not, 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 uh, uh, not destroyed. But he's saying, our slight affliction. Why can he say, our slight affliction? What kind of view does this man have of affliction that he can say of such things? They are slight affliction. Because he's balancing it with the weight of glory in eternity. That's why he's saying, this slight momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things which are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Friends, we live in a society that largely lives for the seen, for the present. What we have to show as Christians is that we're living for the unseen, although our time in this world is important too. And this is what Paul is saying. A lifestyle worthy of the gospel and steadfastness under fire. God is looking for no more, but he's not looking for anything less. May he bless to us his word. Let's conclude our, this evening's service by singing in Psalm 68. Psalm 68 from the Scottish Psalter. 
That's on page 305, singing verses 32 to 35. O all ye kingdoms of the earth, sing praises to this King, for he is Lord that ruleth all, and to him praises sing. To him that rides on heaven of heavens, which he of old did found, lo, he sends out his voice, a voice in might that doth abound. And the psalm finishes, as you see, uh, from Israel's own God, is he who gives his people strength and power. O oh, let God blessed be. These verses are all ye kingdoms of the earth. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen.